It's great to have you. It's great to have so many visitors this morning. Uh, great to see, obviously, some friends from DFC, but also other people visiting us this morning. You're more than welcome uh, amongst us uh, as we uh, just spend time together this morning. We are in a series at the moment where we're looking through the minor prophets in the Old Testament. And uh, this morning, I'm going to be looking at Zephaniah. And uh, I'm going to pray uh, that God will help me and help us as we get into God's word this morning. Father, we just want to thank you for your presence amongst us. Lord Jesus, we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are here. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would help us to hear and see and experience you this morning as we look at your word. Father, we thank you in Jesus. We have access to you. We thank you as we've worshipped you, as we have come into your presence. Lord, we come without fear. Thank you for the cross. Thank you as we celebrate communion, all that it means to us. Jesus, we praise you. We glorify your name. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Okay, so this morning is going to be a little bit, you know, like when you go on a hike, perhaps up a mountain, that you do it for one reason, is actually to see the view when you get to the top. And actually getting to the top can be sometimes a little bit hard work. Uh, It can be steep. It can be full of boulders. The path can be tricky. But you press through because you want to see the view. Zephaniah is a little bit like that. And I want to, this is the view, this verse here. It's probably the most well-known verse in Zephaniah. Let's just read it. The Lord your God is in your midst, a warrior who gives victory. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will renew in you in his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Hallelujah. Is that encouraging? He's with us. He's singing over us. He wants us to know his love. That is the view that we're heading towards. So as we go through some tricky ground, I want you to keep that in focus this morning. We're going to be looking at a warning that Zephaniah brought, a call, and a shift, a shift in the situation, in the circumstances that took place. Now, if you have ever read through Zephaniah, there is one phrase that he repeatedly keeps coming back to. And I won't test you for it, but it's basically there is a day coming or phrase around that whole idea. There is a day coming, people. He's proclaiming it to God's people. There is a day coming. Now, I don't know. Anybody know what today is? Well, apart from Sunday, yes. Well done. You're all awake. Anybody else know what today is? Not a clue. It's the uh, 6th of March, 2018. That. Oh, 4th. Okay, we just edit that bit out. Just stop the tape, rewind. Okay, does anybody know what today is? It's the 4th of March. Yes, well done. Well done, people. Does anybody know? Okay, let's get back on on track. Anybody know what happened on the 4th of March? A few things have happened on the 4th of March. Yeah, no, yeah, no, this is definitely right. 18, 1801, Thomas Jefferson on the 4th of March, first US president. 
1861, Abraham Lincoln was also inaugurated. A lot of presidents I found in this list. 1902, the American Automobile Association was founded on this day. 1918, the first recorded case of Spanish flu was found on this day. 1933, Roosevelt was inaugurated as the 32nd president. 1936, the first flight of the airship Hindenburg, we all remember that in our history lessons, was on this day. And most recently, famously in 2009, the International Criminal Court issues an arrest warrant for Sudanese President Omar Hassan al-Bashir for war crimes. Zephaniah is pointing towards a day that is coming. And he wants us to keep that in mind. And we are going to navigate our way to what that means. Captain James Samaras faced the facts. He was colossally outgunned. The French invasion fleet was circling the British island of Guernsey, carried over twice as many cannon as the few ships that he commanded to defend it. He knew by the end of that day, Sunday the 8th of June, 1794, his ships would lie at the bottom of the English Channel unless he could turn one fact to his advantage. He knew what lay beneath the waves. Samarez was a born and bred Guernseyman. He knew the underwater rocks around his island better than most people know their own back gardens. He was therefore able to fire on the French fleet and withdraw to such rocky waters that the French commanders were too frightened to pursue him and to give up on their invasion plans. As he piloted his fleet through danger, a fellow Guernseyman encouraged him by pointing to the shore. I am quite sure about our position, he said. There is your house and there is mine. Now, the world that Zephaniah was working in was a little bit like that. He was prophesying into a situation where on the surface, perhaps things seemed actually not too bad. But under the water, there were rocks and dangers all around him. Perhaps even as you go down to Radipole Lake and you see a swan gliding across the water, there are two little paddles going 10 to the dozen underneath. And this was the world that Zephaniah was prophesying into. Now, if you know anything of your Old Testament history, we're in the series where God's people are now living in a divided land. They've separated out into two groups. And in fact, the northern group, which was known as Israel, have been already taken off into exile. And they've been taken there because they've been so disobedient. And God had warned them and God had warned them and God had warned them. And finally, they are taken over by other nations and taken off to exile. The smaller nation of Judah is still going. And Zephaniah is speaking into this situation. And it's about 80 years after the northern kingdom has gone. And King Josiah is on the throne. And in his 18th year of being king, he gets one of the priests, a guy called Hilkiah, to open the, 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 the temple uh, book of the law and gets him to read this to him. And when he hears what was written in the book of the law, Josiah's heart is broken. 
And so he wants to set in place and putting back together worship of God. And this is what it says in 2 Kings. It says, and this is God speaking to King Josiah. It says, because your heart was responsive, and because you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard what I have spoken about this place and its people, that they would become a curse and be laid waste. And because you tore your robes and wept in my presence, God says, do you know what? I've heard you. Josiah, I've heard you. Because you have done these things, I have heard you. No prayer is unheard. Thirteen years later, after this event, the nation of Judah is starting to turn around and get their eyes back on God. And this is what it says in a little bit further into Kings. The king stood by the pillar and he renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, his statutes, his decrees with all of his heart and all of his soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in this book. Then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. So how did the king do this? What was going on in his nation as he did this? He decided to take all the vessels of Baal and Asherah, the people were worshipping. He got rid of those. He got rid of the priests who were doing things that they shouldn't have been doing. He got rid of um, male prostitution houses. He got rid of horses that were being dedicated to the sun. And he reinstituted what we have celebrated to some degree, the Passover meal amongst the people. This was what was going on as Zephaniah was prophesying into this nation. And so on the surface, it looked like things were changing. Things were turning around for good. Josiah had done a lot of good work, but God still had things that he wanted to bring to God's people. God always wants to speak to us. He wants to communicate with us. There isn't a moment where God hasn't got something to say. So even when we gather on a, on, a, on a Sunday in this context or in our connect groups or when you're gathering ones and twos, you know, God wants to speak to us. He wants us to be open to what he has to say. And so the first thing that God is going to say to these people is there is a warning coming. There is a warning about a day. Twenty times he warns the people about this day. And the day that was coming was going to be far greater than they'd ever known. They'd had some little invasions as a nation. Israel had tried. Assyria had tried. But there was the Babylonians. They were coming. Ooh, to the Babylonians. Zephaniah was warning them that unless you fully and utterly turn to me, not just look at good on a Sunday morning with your Sunday best on and all nice smiles, but the rest of the week you're not like that. No, no. If you fully turn to me, then I will hold back. But if you don't, this is his warning. I will utterly sweep everything from the face of the earth. That's a warning. That's not, you're just going to have a bad day. I will utterly sweep everything from the face of the earth, says the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. I will overthrow the wicked. 
I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, says the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against you, Judah, and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests. God's wrath towards sin is this. That's how seriously he takes our sin. And his warning to Judah was, unless you change, this could take place. He was so angry. His righteous wrath was so bubbling up because the officials and the kings had looked to do other things. Servants were filling their master's houses with violence. Men were thickening upon their leaves, their sediment at the bottom of the stale wine. And the Lord says to them, it is not good what you do. In our language, he's saying to them, talk is cheap. He's saying it's so easy for you to say the right things and do the right things, but I know really what's happening beneath the surface. I know what's going on really in your heart. See, Jesus sees those things. Do you know what? It's so easy for us to say, we love you, Lord. We love you, God. It's so easy to sing worship songs on Sunday morning. Often I find this the most encouraging place to be, and then I get back into my day-to-day life and think, actually, why aren't I like I am on a Sunday morning? It's easy to just get into the presence of God with everybody else. The sin is always lurking in the recesses of our heart, and it's tempting us and it's pulling us. John Calvin, or in my breast French, Jean Calvin, French theologian, uh, he, who you famously um, you will have heard about, he warned the Protestants of the day of the Reformation. He said that human, the human mind is a perpetual idol factory. It's just like, guys, you can change all your outward stuff, but if it's not happening in here and in here, it means nothing. That's why Zephaniah's warning to Judah is Zephaniah's warning to us. He knows what's leaking in behind us. As we gather as a church, as we gather in our groups, how real are we with what's really going on in here? How real are we? Remember, there is a day coming, Judah was warning them, when out and out unbelievers would be taken out of God's presence. And he's warning us there is a day coming. It's not their day, but there is a day when God will judge all of mankind. There is a warning. And in this moment, even on the 4th of March, 2018, mercy and forgiveness is available. There is a day coming when God will judge all of mankind. And yet today, mercy and forgiveness are available for us. So there's a warning, firstly, Zephaniah brings. 
Then, secondly, there is a call. A call to repentance. D.L. Moody, who is, again, a theologian, was no stranger to the sea. He voyaged back and forth across the Atlantic Ocean more than any other 19th century preacher. He knew what he was talking about when he warned in one of his sermons that Christians should live in the world but not be filled with it. A ship lives in water, but if the water gets into the ship, she goes to the bottom. So Christians may live in the world, but if the world gets into them, they sink. There's a moment when in our lives we are living within the context of our culture that we have to live a life that is different and yet we're in it. If we're not with it and in it, we won't win anyone. But we don't get absorbed by what the world is doing. And our heart is a heart to be repentant, just as Zephaniah was calling to God's people to be, to be repentant for what they had done. And this is what he said to them in chapter 2. He says, come together and hold assembly, O shameless nation. Before you are driven away like a drifting chaff, before there comes upon you fierce anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the wrath of the Lord, the warning is there. This is what you are to do, people. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the wrath of the Lord. He was warning them to come before him and get their lives right. And he warned other nations too through this prophetic word for them to also get themselves right. He warns Philistia. Moab, Amon, the, the, um, the Ethiopians, Assyria. And he said, there is a judgment coming on you nations and the nations of the world when this will all change. We are to be a people that are repentant before him. Do you often see where, where people have become believers, the more thorough that they are of repentance at the point of conversion, their walk with God tends to be more strong and healthy. The more thorough we are at repenting before God, the more strong our walk with him is. That's not good English, but you know what I'm trying to say. We are to be a repentant people. Zephaniah was calling these people to be repentant. In our churches, we need to be people that speak truth. And the way that we live our lives is to be conducive to what we do here. See, people are looking at us all the time. You find that in your workplaces, in your neighborhoods, in your families. People are looking to ready to perhaps point a finger. I thought, I thought you were a Christian. I'm surprised you behave like that or say that or do that. Actually, we need to be people who are repentant of those things and to live a life of this great high calling. Too often our churches are full of people promoting our own agendas, church leaders who are all about ourselves, rather than actually, God, what is it you want to say to us? 
What is it you have got on your agenda for us? Eugene Peterson, who you've probably heard of, he wrote the message version of the Bible. He wrote also this. There he is, clinging onto his message book, Bible. It is useful to listen to people who come into our culture from other cultures, to pay attention to what they hear and what they see. In my experience, they don't tend to see a Christian land. They see something almost the reverse of a Christian land. They see a lot of greed and arrogance. They see a Christian community that has almost none of the virtues of the biblical Christian community. Oh, that's hard, isn't it? Which have to do with a sacrificial life, a conspicuous love. Rather, they see indulgence in feelings, emotions, and a voracious quest for gratification. That's what people see in church. I remember many years ago, we had some friends of ours who, uh, this is in a church way, way back, came to an alpha course, got thoroughly saved, just moving on with God. And they joined the church. And not long after they joined, they started to hear a few little grumblings and moanings and some unhelpful things. And eventually they, they, they left because they had perceived this is what the church looks like. And yet their experience, sadly, was something very different. It's so easy for us to slip into something that isn't what the Bible teaches. It's so easy for us as a community to look shiny on the outside, but underneath there is something very different going on. We need to be a church that is constantly coming back to God in repentance, as Zephaniah called us to do. And then thirdly, a shift is about to take place. Zephaniah has given a warning. Unless you do this, this is going to happen. He's called them to repentance. And then he comes with a shift. There are two things that Zephaniah is going to prophesy into these people. The firstly is there is a promise of a global awakening to God. He says this, for my decision, this is God speaking through Zephaniah, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms and to pour out upon them my indignation, all the heat of my anger in the fire of my jealous wrath for all the earth shall be consumed. For then I will give to the, the people's purified lips that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and to serve him shoulder to shoulder. At that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him in one accord. There are two things happening in this statement. One thing God is saying, here's my jealous wrath, and it's a scary wrath. We should be fearful of it. And yet in the same breath, he's saying, I want to call people to myself. And that is the tension of Zephaniah, that he, is, he can do both at the same time. He can be righteously anger and yet incredibly gracious and compassionate. 
Isn't it our prayer? Often in our prayer meetings, we're praying, God, we want to see revival. We want to see revival. Ken is one of our protagonists for praying for revival. We want to see our town change. We want to see our communities change. We want to see our workplaces change. We're praying, God, for revival. And yet often will you, God will often use his holy wrath to bring people to repentance. Shakes up their lives. We don't want to see anybody come into God's kingdom through fear. But there is a righteous wrath that God has. C.S. Lewis, another famous writer, a little bit older, wrote a little bit more than just the line, the witch in the wardrobe. He said this, when Christianity says that God loves man, it means that God loves man. You ask for a loving God, you have one. Not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you could be happy in your own way. Not the cold philanthropy of a conscientious magistrate, nor the care of a host who feels responsible for the comfort of his guests, but the consuming fire himself. The love that made the world persistent as the artist's love for his work and the authoritarian as a man's love for a dog. Provident and venerable as a father's love for a child. Jealous, inexorable, exacting as love between the sexes. How can this be? I do not know. It passes reason to explain why any creatures, not to say creatures such as we, should have a value so prodigious in their creator's eyes. How do these things happen at the same time? A righteous wrath and yet an amazing compassion. Is God himself brings us to these places. Secondly, a revival and purification, Zephaniah says, he says, on that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. On that day, when we stand before Jesus, because of our faith in him, he says, because of your deeds, you're not going to be held. These aren't going to be held against you. It's not going to be held against you because of Christ. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. For when I leave in the midst of a people, uh, sorry, for when I leave in the midst of you a people humble and lowly, they shall take refuge in the Lord. God is looking for a people who are humble and lowly, who put him first. That's what he's going to do. That's what he's doing through us now. Now, in this series of the Minor Prophets, one of the titles we felt God say to us as we were praying about it was the But God Moment. Remember when Mick just opened it up for us a few weeks ago? The But God Moment. What's the But God Moment of Zephaniah? It's pretty damning. It looks a little bit without hope. But there is a but God moment. The but God moment is this spectacular verse of Zephaniah 3, verse 17. The world is in a mess. God's calling us to repentance. His wrath will come and yet his compassion will come. And in that moment, 
he reminds us that he's in our midst. He's a warrior who gives us victory. He will rejoice over us with gladness. He will rejoice, uh, will renew you in his love, and he will exalt you over you with loud singing. Now, it's great that Gary's here. I wasn't going to say this, but God's just reminded me of this. What would it sound like for God to be singing over you? We hear or see in Scripture, Sam's already getting nervous. <laughs> you see in Scripture where God speaks into being things. But Zephaniah says he's singing over us. Now, I've had a few opportunities to be at different conferences with Gary over the years. And we have often twinned up in a, in a, in a hotel room. And one of the joys of when you go away with Gary is the singing in the shower in the morning. And it tends to be the last worship song he heard the night before is the first one you hear in the morning. And so I'm like, one line of it, yeah, it goes over and over again. So I'm trying to have a lie in and I can hear this, this singing. And actually he sings really well. He does sing well. God's singing over us. What does that sound like? If he can speak into being the heavens and the earth, what will his singing sound like? I just, you, still, you get this picture of what heaven's going to be like. It's going to just be incredible. If you've ever heard an orchestra play live and, and, and you think, well, you see all these instruments around you and you think, how are we ever going to hear the little guy playing the triangle in the back row? And just in that moment, you can hear that ding, can't you? Just the, the music is so beautifully written and the musicians play it so well. This is the moment of Zephaniah said, God's singing over you. God, can't you see it? The world is falling apart and yet there is a father in heaven who sings over us. As he sings, it's like the thundering roar of Niagara and the sound of a mountain spring at the same time. It's like the blast of a volcano and the sound of a cat purring through delight. It's like the sound of a hurricane. And then, as we've heard over these last few days, like the little puff of snow in the woods. God singing over us is glorious. It's worth celebrating because he loves his people. How do we know he's singing over us? Because he calls us to repentance. He has a purpose for us. He has given us a hope. And he's given our town a hope. You believe that? He's given our town a hope. We don't bank on our own righteousness. We aren't going to work harder to earn his righteousness. We're going to receive it as a gift. And we're going to see, I believe, see many lives changed through Jesus. That's our heart as we sing these songs, as we read these words. I want us to come back into worship. We're going to sing a song.
that was written out of Zephaniah 3. It's a song that you will know really well, but you will see through the words of the song how they have woven the theme of Zephaniah together. So we just stand. We're going to come back to worship just as we come towards a close. But just before, if, if you guys could just um, get us ready. Let's just, uh, before the Lord again, just remind ourselves rightly of his righteous wrath towards sin. A most holy God who knows no wrong cannot abhor sin, cannot take it on him. And yet in Jesus, the wrath of the Father was taken. The wrath towards your sin was taken upon him. And even as, uh, as we just are in this moment, there are probably things even now, you're just thinking, God, I just want to get that bit right again. Lord, that my, my, my walk with you is okay. I know and love and trust you, but there's this element of my life, there's this part of me that actually, Lord, I just want to, again, bring back to you. Lord, I want to repent of that mindset, of that attitude, of that behavior, of that way of thinking. Lord, I want to come to the gracious and yet holy Father. I want to receive forgiveness afresh this morning. God is calling us to be a repentant people. And he's calling us to be a people who proclaim his good news. His good news. Lord, we want you to sing over hundreds and hundreds of lives in our town. Lord, that's our heart. We want you to sing songs of salvation. Lord, over the lost, over those who are far from you. Father, we long to be on that day when we gather before you with countless friends, family, work colleagues, neighbours. Jesus, as you gather us, Lord, would you sing over us? Would you sing over us? As we worship you, Lord, Lord, I thank you that you, you sing songs back to us. Everyone needs compassion.